0: Welcome to the Marketing Millennials, the no BS marketing podcast. I'm Daniel Murray, and join me for unfiltered conversations with the brains behind marketing's coolest companies. The one request I tell our guests, stories or it didn't happen. Get ready to turn the up. One of the biggest liabilities
1: for any e-commerce brand is almost always the cost of traffic, the cost of acquisition. For many brands, it's like 30 to 40% of their revenue, 50% of their revenue sometimes is tied up in just paying for traffic. And this sort of thought hit me that like, what if you could take that liability and turn it into an asset? And what if that is what it means to build, build a media company? Are you
0: up to speed on effective cross-channel customer engagement? If not, you could be losing customers and missing out on serious ROI. Visit braze.com backslash TM to learn what customer engagement is and how it sets brands like yours apart. What's up everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the Margie Millennials. Today I have John on the podcast. He'll give you a little background, but welcome John on the pod to the pot. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me. Appreciate uh,
1: Appreciate you having me. I'm excited to be here. I was kind of telling you behind the scenes before, I listen to this pod. Sometimes you end up guesting on pods you don't listen to as much, or maybe every now, but like this one
0: I listen to, so, so this is good. This will be fun. I appreciate the listens, and coming from a great marketer, it's always flattering when someone listens to a pod that is actually a great marketer, so it's cool. I want to talk about how you got into marketing, though, first, and then we'll go into the chat.
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think I've heard you mention before that like you play college football. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I also, I ran track in college and uh, I was good enough. I was like, uh, I was like an all American, but not better than that. I was like good enough to run professionally, but not good enough to get paid a lot to run professionally, especially in track. It's just, it's not deep. It's very top heavy who gets paid. So it's it's a very interesting, and and you probably experienced something similar, have seen other athletes experience something similar. I basically spent the first 24 to 25 years of my life completely identifying as athlete, like completely identifying as runner. I had no idea who I was outside of that. That was my self-identity. That was my self-value. When I wasn't running well, then I was worthless. When I was running really well, then I was like everything. Um, And that's kind of just how I viewed myself. And so I, I did that, like I was running professionally. And, uh, when I was uh, like back in 2016, I was basically just working jobs to support myself because I couldn't make enough money running pos- professionally to support myself. And so I was working at this a- SEO agency part-time, uh, it was like a, kind of a local business SEO agency. We had like some crazy number of clients, like 17,000, like a crazy number of clients, And I was like an assembly line thing. I just, uh, I did like one thing all day, but I started learning about SEO. uh, And then that year, my wife got pregnant with our first kid and we had to move. So I had to move away from my coach, my training group, everything. We just had to move back to kind of the same, the city she's from so that we could get support from her parents. Um, And that was sort of like when I stopped being an athlete, just because I didn't have that support system to be an athlete anymore. And so had, you know, the identity crisis that many athletes go through. And I basically just redirected all of that energy back into the only other thing that I knew anything about, which at that point in time was marketing and SEO. I I got another job, used that experience to get another job at like more of a boutique agency that dealt with 12 clients that spent in total like a billion dollars a year on advertising, or maybe not a billion, maybe 500 million, something like that, a lot. And They brought me in to basically lead digital, be SEO. And then I had also run uh, some Facebook ads at that point. And so then I became their head of paid social, which that was all that I needed to be qualified to be the head of paid social. Like, oh, you know what Facebook ads manager looks like. You're the head of paid social. Congratulations. And so like, I just like, that's it. Like I've always valued like just working hard at a thing and like getting better at it and achieving mastery of it like many athletes do. And I just like redirected that energy. Um, and I didn't really even care how much money I made doing it. I just like, I wanted to be better at it. I wanted to be somehow the best at it, whatever. And yeah, I just kind of like went from there. I networked pretty well while I was there, launched my own agency. Uh, and then that agency got acquired a couple of years ago. I worked with the acquiring team for about two years and now I'm, I'm kind of back to doing my own thing.
0: Well, that's a journey. I, I can resonate with the athlete crisis too. I, I remember like not playing football anymore. I didn't want to play football anymore. Like I kind of like lost steam because as you know, like you either have to be and you're probably good. You either have to be like 110% in the sport. You can't be like 70, 80 to no. be good at the sport. You have to be the 110 or nothing. And it's hard once you actually start having to providing for a family or
1: like anything like that. I, I don't run at all really anymore. I've I do other stuff. I play basketball. I do. But it's very hard just like Accepting that you're only ever going to be worse at a thing that you've cared so much about for so long. And so, I like to me, I just don't do it. You know, I don't want to just get worse for the rest of my life.
0: Yeah. I mean, same with me. Like, I just took up tennis and I'm like, now my all energy's in there. I played football. I'm not ever going to play football again. I've accepted that, huh? Yeah. So, you have a unique view on creating media companies. So, everybody thinks like we have to be a media company and that view has been going on for at least like the least like the last five years like create to be a media, media but you have a different perspective on it because you go into like how you think about the media company and what brand should actually be doing my agency when I lo- like started my agency the
1: thing that was really hot at the time it was 2017 was e-commerce you know like you were still able to like I mean drop shippers were still able to do stuff uh, back then so e-commerce was really hot. And that was a lot of the clients I got initially, and that was a lot of the network connections I made. And I remember specifically some people that I knew really well in the space saying, you know, internally, if you're an e-commerce company, internally, what your job is, is to be a media company, which isn't really true. Like you're actually, you're just logistics. There's a lot of logistics in in a product company, but when you're outsourcing all those logistics by being a drop shipper, then yeah, your job basically is to be customer service and a media company. And uh, what they meant when they said that was make a bunch of different ads, make better ads, right? Like that's what they meant is just crank out a bunch of pieces of media that are designed to sell your product. And I was kind of like, that just seems like not the right words for the thing you mean, right? Like be a media company does not mean crank out lots of ads. And I always sort of thought that. So as I sort of exited that space, sold my agency, like winded down working with that acquiring team. I've thought about that a little bit, and and the biggest, the thing I've realized is like, one of the biggest liabilities for any e-commerce brand, and by liability I mean, financial liability, a cost on their PNL. One of their biggest liabilities is almost always the cost of traffic, the cost of acquisition. For many brands, it's like thirty to forty percent of their revenue, fifty percent of their revenue sometimes, is tied up in just paying for traffic, and this sort of thought hit me that like, what if you could take that liability and turn it into an asset? And what if that is what it means to build build a media company? So what I do now is I specifically work with brands to help them launch really two forms of media. It could be any kind of media conceptually, but I do it with two forms of media, newsletters and podcasts. So if I look at it like, hey, I'm going to partner with brand XYZ, Acme Pie Company, and we're going to launch a newsletter we want to launch a newsletter that is just content for content's sake. It's just media and it's designed to be its own profitable media company. And then Acme Pie Company can advertise on there for free. But the media property itself is actually de- designed to be its own business. You know, So that we're taking that thing that's like a huge liability and we're not going to make the liability go away, right? They're still going to spend money, Acme Pie Company, still going to spend money on traffic. But we're essentially creating an asset that can account for some of that liability right so it's going to offset the cost of traffic a little bit by providing revenue and it's going to offset the need to pay for traffic by providing traffic so this, this sort of like the new outlook i'm taking and and some of the initial launches are are interesting
0: when you say like media company do you, do you say that it the media company could be something random or does it have to be like okay agme pie company creates a a cooking like media company That's what's tough
1: about it. So I'll give you one of like the hardest ones that I'm doing. It's a company called Ondar. I'm the fractional CMO for Ondar. And it's everyday carry stuff. So they have like wallets, phone cases. They have like bags, you know, backpacks, that kind of thing. What do you create a newsletter about? You know what I mean? That like makes sense. Because they're, I mean, who is their TAM? It's everybody who has, everybody who puts things into bags, right? Like everybody who has a phone and needs a case, right? they They have like this really large Tam. And one of the biggest problems for brands that have a really large Tam is it they like it's really hard for them to define like who is our target market and how do we message to them. Acme Pie Company is like an easier example because it's like, well, it's people who like pie for sure. you know, like that already isn't everybody. So using the example of of ondar, the thing we launched is we kind of said, like, okay, well, it has to be, It can't be about our products. It has to be about like a topic that an audience wants. So you just, all you have to really be able to do is take and say, what is an audience that would be interested in our products? So for Ondar, there's maybe a couple options. Option one would be tech audiences, right? Tech review, YouTube channels are huge. Tech review newsletters are a thing, right? So tech stuff. What do people have to put on tech? Usually cases. Usually people put tech into bags, right? So there is this sort of techie audience that, Uh, would be like an addressable market for Ondar. It's not their entire addressable market, but it's an addressable market. And it's one we can create continuing content around. There's always new tech coming out. It provides like material for continuous content. Um, So that's like one. And then where we actually went with it is creators. They they do a lot with brand ambassadors, with influencers and stuff like that. So we launched a a podcast with them that's like a creator podcast, specifically designed to be a resource for creators. Uh, The idea being that, That allows us to network with big creators that we'd like to collab with that allows us to build an audience of creators and aspiring creators that can become brand ambassadors and those are leverage points for them the more creators they get in the more brand ambassadors they get in those are all like multipliers right for their business so that's kind of what it has to look like it can't be on the nose about your topic it has to be what's like an addressable market that would be interested
0: in your products your example of like the broader things i think a lot of time, like, even if you know an audience broad, there is like a certain niche of people that are like diehard, like, case, like, yeah, like fashion type people that will do that, which you said, like, tech people want to keep their tech nice. There is, there's always someone in the market that you, you just have to fire, carve out, like, which area is the biggest, like, potential for us to grow in and market we can grow on
1: what you're looking for if you're like broad is so broad companies are the ones that have the hardest time doing this i'm I'm working with a one right now that has it's a more niche thing um and it's i don't know if i like really want to get into it it's something that happens to be appeal to a politically conservative audience most often so for them it's it's easier because it's like well you could launch a politically conservative newsletter and there is kind of like your audience it's uh, you can be more on the product itself isn't that it just you know it, it appeals to that audience more often so if your audience is already defined and kind of niche it's like pretty easy usually to launch the media property a lot of times there probably is already a lot of media properties around it if your audience is pets there's a lot of YouTube channels a lot of newsletters a lot of podcasts Right. So you can kind of just be another one, which, you know, you do want to come up like then you have to think of media as a product and you have to say, like, how are we going to differentiate and be better or different than others? But if it's broad brands, broad companies are the ones that have the hardest time coming up with this because they're like, well, there's just so much appeal. Like, how, how do we define it? Uh, and it's like, you don't. it doesn't have to be everybody. Just what's a subset? You know what I mean? So you're looking for a Venn diagram and what you're looking for in the Venn diagram is like, okay what is a topic we can create content about on the one side and then like who are people who like our products on the other side so andar is a great example of like literally anybody could like their products so they could talk about business if they want they could talk about ai if they want they could talk how much crossover is there in those venn diagrams probably not as much as there is in like a tech venn diagram if that makes sense
0: there's also another way to think about too is like you always could like add on a media property to your media property. So it's like, just start with something and then you can grow into other the other things. I also want to go into like, at what stage should companies do this? Because like at the beginning, it's kind of hard to say like, I want to launch a podcast and grow, get revenue on the board. So let's
1: get into just like phases of e-commerce growth a little bit. If you're like zero to probably 2 million, 3 million, I mean, it depends on your margin levels that the one company that I talked about, the brand that is uh, appeals to a politically conservative audience, they really are at that 3 million stage. But it, it does make sense for them because a lot of that is like really high margin revenue. They sell a membership. So if you're in that stage, really a lot of your efforts probably should be focused on direct response. It should be focused on AdWords. It should be focused on Facebook ads. It should be focused on influencer collaborations that can drive direct results you got to get good at that initially. And then you got to put the other things in place, the email marketing, the SMS. This is the basics, right? Like this is the fundamentals of e-commerce. Like you're still in that fundamental stage. 1 million, 2 million, 3 million. 3 to 10, a lot of times you're probably too chaotic to do something like this. Because you're. that's when you're going to start hiring team members. That's when logistics are going to start catching up with you. And you might have to be figuring out different 3PLs or different shipping and logistics companies and that kind of stuff. So like kind of three to 10, three to eight, maybe million, you're focused on something else. Uh, and you don't want to like really overstretch or over leverage yourself into doing something, you know, when you just can't put the focus into it, especially when it's media, because you can't pay to play. It's not like e-commerce where you run ads and you get sales or you don't get sales. But if you don't get sales, you can just test new ads. Media is like you like, it's got to actually be good. You can't launch 20 bad ads just to get one good one. You can't launch 20 bad pieces of media just to get one good one because then you lose your entire audience. So you have to be able to focus on it or partner with someone who can focus on it. So yeah, you have to have the resources. And then the other thing is the resources. Like there's kind of like four resources I look at, like if a brand's going to partner with me to do it between the two of us, who's bringing these four resources to the table. So really it's kind of there in that like eight to $12 million range or above that it really starts to make sense, I think, when you've settled into like, okay, we actually could handle the scale to get to 25 million, 50 million. Does that make
0: sense? The way I, I, I'm i thinking about it too is like, first, like, get to product market fit with your, your product. Then like, okay, we can scale performance because we have product market fit we could do. So do performance marketing, get your basics on a performance marketing. Once you've got your basic, it's a time to be like, okay, We're scaling really fast, but I don't know how much like the scale could last forever. So we need to have another asset that like we could substitute that fast scale with and that's media and brand and everything else and get more impressions somewhere else. Most e-commerce companies are
1: never really getting into like branding initiatives these days, like maybe not until they're really large scale. And it's because they just like they get a bad taste in their mouth about them early on the way that I would put it is like this. If you're at a stage in your e company where you're like, if I I can invest money into any kind of marketing as long as it makes me a return. like If I can put $1 in and get $2 out, $3 out, then I'll put as much money in as possible. That's fine. But you're probably not at the stage to build a media company yet because uh, the ultimate, like I said, is that media property, you want it to be its own profitable entity. But Unlike your e-commerce company that could have been bootstrapped, not all of them are bootstrapped. Some of them are funded, but could have been bootstrapped. Sorry, I'll say it again. Unlike your e-commerce company that could have been bootstrapped, you're going to put Some form of funding into this. It could be team member resource and a low amount of money. It could be more money. Like you're going to put some form of funding into growing a media brand before it starts returning, right? So if you're going to grow a newsletter, it's got to hit five or 10,000 subscribers before you're really going to see much in the form of like revenue from it, either for your brand or for like advertisers if you're looking to make it its own profitable entity. So you've got to be able to put the resource into it to get it to that point. And that could be team member human resource that could be like dollar resource. So that's kind of what it is. Like you got to be at that stage where you're like, oh, I can invest 30K, 40K, 50K into something that isn't going to return right away, but will return in six months or 12 12 months or something.
0: It's basically like R&D for another SKU that you want to like add into a thing. And it is is technically another SKU. Like if you think about it like you're thinking about it, which some people just say like build a media company it's just to draw traffic, it doesn't make money. But if you think about it like, okay, we can either, we have great products already in our line. Like, should we invest in another product or should we invest in a media brand that would get us money long-term, but it's gonna take like six months of R&D upfront to get it to another product. If you think about it as a product, then it becomes more of like a mindset of shit than just saying it's a marketing asset. Media properties are harder to
1: grow in a sense. In, in some ways they're easier because you're not asking for a transaction but in a sense they're harder harder to grow than like e-commerce e-commerce the formula is really clear like pay for traffic see if you can make as much money as you need to on that paid traffic uh whereas media it's like there's this like subjective like is it good or not and then if it's if it's like not you might think it's good but it's not and then your audience doesn't stay so yeah it just you're like you said it takes r&d it takes some input into doing it and, and whatever you make up. Like media property in, right? So using the example of Ondar, if they were to make a tech tips newsletter, you need someone who's like plugged in, like who actually could write a tech tips newsletter. You can't just hand it off to someone random, you know, otherwise it's not good. So you've got to be in a position to like be in an investment position. I mean, think of it like any investment, like, you know, is your company or your brand doing well enough that you have enough money that you're like, oh, I could throw some money at an investment that will start to cash flow for me you know, after three months or six months, and after maybe 12 months, it'll be cash flowing pretty nicely. Uh, if you're in that kind of position, then you're probably in the position to start.
0: And, and you got to think about it two ways too it's cash flow and reduced CAC at the same time.
1: Yeah, it, it provides that as, as well, which, you know, and that's kind of because that can get hard to measure, sort of, it, depending on the property you launch, newsletter, not so much, but like if you launch a podcast, specifically or a YouTube channel, it can get hard to measure the reduced CAC, kind of like a brand initiative. That's why I say like just make it its own profitable thing and then whatever reduced CAC you're enjoying because of it, you're like, that's gravy. It's an easier way, I think, for a lot of founders to wrap their head around it. You know what I'm
0: saying? Yeah. And I was I also think that the way you're saying it is true. I think you have to separate the media company from marketing initiatives because what happens is then when you get screwed in marketing, like marketing has like maybe a little bit of downturn. What you do is like start rooting the the media product that you've built. Instead of like thinking about like, okay, this is an investment on the side. We're not using it for like just straight marketing initiatives. We, we can plug it when we need to plug it, but we're not using it. But the problem is when I see is like, we're creating a media company. It's part of the marketing team. And then like Revenue dips maybe a little bit and then you're like, let's use the media property to do it. And then the media property starts getting net trust, not building anymore. People stop reading, You reduce audience, all that good stuff.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you want to model, there's a couple companies who do exactly what I'm talking about relatively well. And they've built groups like there. It's not just like one newsletter or podcast that goes alongside it. Triple Whale is a great example because they do accept ad revenue on their like Triple Whale Podcast Network podcasts. Um, They do accept sponsorship revenue on them. I think they also accept sponsorship revenue in their newsletter. But you know, I don't know if it's technically a separate entity. It probably isn't. It's probably part of the same entity. But I think there's actually benefits in making it like a technically separate entity, like you're saying. And I can get into those as well. But they're one that's doing it really well. HubSpot is also a model, but... The thing that HubSpot does is they don't accept ad revenue. They just, you know, they say, you know, we have this thing that's its own company and we advertise HubSpot on it only. And uh yeah, I mean, maybe they get some kind of programmatic revenue on, on YouTube or something like that for their YouTube channels and for their blogs. But those are some that are doing it well where it's like these things you can tell. It's like these aren't designed to be a content marketing play. These are designed to be Content media just for content's sake, right? Just for the sake of being good in educational, entertaining, and stuff like that. That's the um, and and there's like a whole separate group of people who are executing on it, it they're, that aren't part of the HubSpot team.
0: You know what I'm saying? Brands like yours send billions of marketing messages every day. It's no wonder attention spans are shrinking, and it's harder than ever to keep customers engaged. So, how can you stay ahead of the curve? You can start by embracing great customer engagement with Braze. Visit braze.com backslash T-M-M to learn how you can harness world-class marketing tools for cross-channel engagement and how it will set you apart from the competition. The way that Kip, the CMO of Zopzot, I know you know who it is, but like the way he thinks about it is that, I mean, there's a bunch of marketing channels out there but like you want to be inserted in other parts of your audience's day. So it's like, how could I figure out different ways to be where my audience is? Okay? My audience is reading newsletters. my audience is listening to podcasts. my audience is my audience is on social media. How do I figure out like organic ways to be a part of their day? That's why they have like the, their network because they're like, okay, business people, or marketers or salespeople. I want to be part of their day without only being the news source they read, the paid ads they see, the events they attend. I want to be part of every part of their day. So I Well, they're driving. Yeah. Something. Yeah. I actually think, I don't think either of those, if I were to guess, I don't think
1: either of those two companies actually structure their media properties as a separate entity. They might for some of their, like, there's some, I don't know fully how they do it, but there's some podcasts I know in the HubSpot network where I don't think HubSpot owns it. I think it's a collaboration with the creator. So maybe that is then a separate entity and maybe it's a contract agreement. I don't know. But there's some benefits, I think, to actually making it a separate entity. One, you, you view it independently. So when it comes time to just say, like you were saying, you know, maybe on the brand side, you know, Acme Pie Company is not selling as many pies with Facebook ads as they used to. So they're like, all right, let's, you know, put a bunch of offers and stuff in our, in our newsletter, when you view it as a separate entity, what you then look at is you look at the opportunity cost just for that entity. They say, you say, well, Acme Pie Company gets free ad spots for life as being part owner of this, of this separate entity. That's the newsletter. How much revenue for this entity are we giving up to give them an ad spot in this newsletter, you know, this week or next week or whatever. So when you're Acme Pie Company, instead of just like over pounding that media property, over pounding that newsletter, you look at it and you say, well, okay, maybe we don't because that's actually worse for it. Or maybe we do because this is the main business and that's nice to have on the side, but if it doesn't make as much money,
0: that's okay. So you just, it gives you a lot more clarity of decision. One example that I think is pretty cool. It's a little bit different, but like another way to do it is, there's a company called like, I think it's Validity and they do like, um, email reputation. And then they have like, another site called Senderscore score that's like different part of it and all that site is is like a media property or, well it's like a free tool to like check your tool but it's not part of it but they get so many leads so many like impressions on Senderscore, score but it is part of validity at the same time so they're a separate media company that's getting a bunch of views and they can market validity whenever they want but it's it's way it's separate to different entities
1: Some companies do this through acquisitions. Then it's sometimes easier to think of them as separate entities because you're like, oh, I want it to be, you know, continue to to cash flow. Uh, But the way I look at it is like, I like it as a separate entity. You know, if you're going to do this yourself, that's fine. But like, you're going to have to bring what I said earlier, four resources to the table, right? Like, so if we're partnering with someone and whether if a brand's going to do this themselves or whether they're going to partner with someone else to do it, it doesn't matter. But you have to look at it like this somebody's got to bring money to like some combination of money, time, subject matter expertise, and audience, right? So some combination of those four resources have to exist in order to create a media property. If you just have audience and subject matter expertise, there you go. You might not need money, but you're going to need time. If you don't really have an audience, you're probably going to need money, right? Like, so some combination of those four things is going to be brought to the table. So that that's kind of like, you know, Again, you can making it a separate entity also makes it so you can partner with someone outside, right? Like, let's say you find a writer who is like a good writer or editor for the subject matter that you want to create your newsletter around your podcast around. You're like, well, I want to partner with them on this. And, you know, maybe I want to pay them to do it. Uh, I want to leverage their audience by paying them to do it and i want to like you know cover all the resources for them and stuff like that right then what you're bringing to the table is money and then you're also saying a bunch of people on our 500,000 person email list that we've built over the years would probably be interested in this so you're also bringing some audience to the table they're bringing subject matter expertise to the table and some audience to the table and time because they're going to put the time into it right so making it a separate entity then allows you guys to like partner on it actually and be be like it, it's a joint venture between your company is one owner, and that other person is the is the other owner. So I think that's like a that's why why it's such a beneficial way to kind of look at it as well, because it makes it a lot easier
0: to launch, in my opinion. I'm in agreement. Like I'm on the boat of if you're going to create a legit media property, like you could act like a media company, which is different than creating a media company. Those are two different like actions. Uh, you have to have separate goals, separate investments, separate talent, separate time, separate. Expertise. Um, you might have someone in the company that has one of those things, but you have to think it different.
1: Yeah, that was the case with Ondar. They have myself and two other internal creators who are creators on their own. And so the, they do have the expertise in house, but a lot of brands don't, right? Like a lot of brands have hired for what they do. They don't actually have the expertise of, of creating a media property. I think one other, like, maybe important point of discussion here that, like, most like I'm kind of surface level saying like, hey brands, here's what you should do. But like if a brand sort of bought into the idea, like, great. Yeah, that's cool. One thing that I would, I actually have questions for you about, and and I have obviously my own opinions, but I would love to just chat about a little bit is like actually growing media properties because it's very different than being an internal marketer growing a brand. So I'd, mm-hmm. like to, I, I'd like to hear from you like what you think. So, all right, we're launching this media property. Maybe we are doing it with internal resources, or maybe we're kind of partnering with someone on it, but it's part of our job to like help it grow. What's like podcast specifically, you've grown a podcast, which is the hardest thing to grow. Like what is the difference or what is like the way that you go about growing a media company versus an e-com brand? I would have said the tactics, but it's it's weird to call them tactics.
0: In e-commerce, they're called tactics. (laughs) There's a couple of different ways I think about it. One could I create a social organic presence or an audience on social first to push it, middle funnel, or low funnel? So you either you could either do that. The second way to do it is, hey, can I trade like like for like with another podcast, one of my friends to like? Because if someone's listening to podcasts, that really means a lot of the time that they're going to be listen, they'll listen to another podcast. So can I trade those type of things? The other part is, can I get guests that will promote this podcast on other other networks? Like, is this going to be an interview-style podcast where I know my guests, like, usually it is not the big people that actually promote the podcast. So, like, unless they have good SEO for their name, it's probably not the guy. Like, it's probably more like mid-scale influencers that are, like, so amped to be on a podcast that will do it. And then the last bit of thing is, like, am I willing to yeah. pay to play? Like, you have to pay to get? So, like, you got to think about, like, do I have connections? Like, can I get better guests? Or do I do I have money to spend to, like, promote it? Or, like, am I great at social that I can organically push this? But usually now that YouTube shorts, Instagram videos, like TikTok, if you can get someone who's, like, great at making clips and your content is great, you could probably get a lot of more a lot more views so that's how i think about it for it's different for each property but that's how i think about it for a park and then just last longer than everybody else
1: so uh greg popovich who's the all-time winningest coach in the nba he's won more games than anyone else i think when he got like when he hit the number that made him win more games than anyone else somebody was like how do you become like the winningest coach in the nba and his answer was draft tim duncan and then stay alive and i think that's what it is in podcasting sometimes like make the podcast and then just keep making it for a long time. And then slowly it will kind of grow. Podcasts are grind. So I agree with everything you said. And that's part of like brings it back to not just subject matter expertise, but like actual operational expertise around growing a media property versus growing an e-commerce business, because it's very different. I thought it would be very similar. And like the more I've grown my own media properties, it just is really different. I'm a pay to play guy. Like I'm a paid traffic dude through and through. And it it's crazy that like, I can't just pay to grow it all the time. I can, it will grow it, but it has to also be sticky. Right. So like I can pay for views. I can pay for downloads. I can pay. Well, I, I, you can sort of pay for downloads. Podcasting specifically is the hardest because it's actually even hard to pay to play on podcasting, but you know, I can pay for promotions on other podcasts and stuff like that. But then it has to be like sticky and
0: good and you don't have like a good feedback loop. Yeah, you have to also think about retention, which is the hardest thing in podcasts. I'm very interested in how podcasts
1: grow selfishly. And that's kind of what I wanted ask, why I wanted to ask you. For the most part, I think that my view on this has evolved. I've like, I've always been like very bullish on podcasting just because I I love it. I love it as a medium. I consume it. It's gotten me a long way. But I think for most e-commerce brands that are going to e-commerce or really any kind of brand, I'm kind of hitting e-commerce a lot, but it's only because I think a lot of other types of companies get it. SaaS has a model for it already in HubSpot. You see a lot of entrepreneurs kind of already do this sort of thing or something similar. But if if you have a brand or a company that is already highly driven by paid ads, I think for the most part, a newsletter is a better place to start because it does model out a little bit more similarly like you can pay to play you can pay to grow that list and then you get the direct feedback of like is my content engaging you know by way of like open rates click rates responses you should be asking for responses in your newsletters right so you get those those feedback signals of like all right i'm paying to bring people in are those people sticky and if i continue to pay people to bring people in will this thing slow grow so i think Typically, newsletters is a better place to start because it models out a little bit more similarly to any other company that's been doing paid ads. But I think there is one specific time where a podcast is better. Maybe two, but one, one really specific time where a podcast is better. And that is where, that is in any situation where like a networking tool would be your biggest asset.
0: Does that make okay. sense to you? Yeah, that's, I mean, why I started a podcast.
1: A podcast is like the quickest way to like punch up and meet somebody that's bigger than you and like really has no business talking to you. So that's why we launched the creator podcast for Ondar because a lot of like the biggest leverage point for them is they do sort of royalty deals with these big influencers. And it's like, oh, the quickest way to like start the talks with big influencers is just be like, hey, do you want to come be on this pod? Even if it's not a big, big podcast yet, it's still exciting, you know, and it's still flattering to be asked.
0: to be like the best way to do it is like invite your potential prospects on the pro- podcast and be like okay hey come to my podcast. don't sell them or anything but then now they have like reciprocity They they want they know you they put you build a relationship they like you and then you have a better chance of getting another account is that
1: yeah I mean for most e-commerce it's not as relevant you know most of them are pretty widely b2c. But if there's a way where it's like, oh, yeah, like you're really heavy heavy in leveraging relationships for your e-commerce business, then it actually might make sense. I, I Maybe another situation would be like if you're really heavy in in retailers, right? Like maybe it's launching a retailer podcast or something like that, you know, where you... Bring or, affiliates or affiliates or... Affiliates, yep. Yeah. Like yeah. Like, uh. So in most cases, I would recommend a newsletter because it models out a little bit more similarly. If you've already grown with paid traffic, you can use paid traffic a little more directly to grow a newsletter. But yeah, I think a podcast... And, and so I, I specifically just deal in those two mediums because it's it's the ones I know. I mean, a YouTube channel is also like a very interesting way to go about it. It's, It could be its own in- independently profitable entity and it can be, you know, that sort of side
0: thing too. I just don't have that level of expertise in YouTube to speak to it. Yeah, like a t- like starting it like a TV like a TV show for a brand and like placing your product within it with naturally. So I think
1: big examples of this are like feastables with Mr. Beast. It was a YouTube channel first, obviously, but I think black rifle coffee has done something similarly similar, but like with less success uh, where they launched a YouTube channel that was like, it's just like off-roading and like, it's, it's nothing to do with their product. It's just something their audience would like. And then they kind of product integrate in there. So, yeah, I mean, that's like another Avenue you could go. I don't, I can't really speak to that, but yeah, to me, audience growth is like, I'm a pay to play guy. And if you're going to try and pay to play your, to your audience growth, then you should probably do the newsletter first. And it's also to launch the podcast off the back of something else, right? If you want to launch a podcast eventually, that's fine. Grow your newsletter to 50,000 subscribers first.
0: I, that's why I say either like have a top of funnel where you can like get the first few raising fans in the door. Cause that like one of the, the three biggest ways that podcasts are sure. Like spread at the beginning is one, like you have a, a channel, you like scrappy and you like DM a bunch of people, or like you have great word of mouth that like your podcast is so great and people talk about it. But I think a lot of people forget the number one thing you need to do at the beginning of a podcast is nail how good the podcast is because that that's gonna be your long term success in a podcast is how much you can retain people coming back every single week to listen.
1: Yeah. You said something interesting. So I've also, I mean, maybe we have opposite viewpoints on this. I think if you're a brand and podcast clips for short form channels, like Instagram or TikTok would be independently valuable to you, right? Just having content for those. That, that's great too. I'm not so bullish on the short form clips. It's like everybody does them and and maybe that's why I'm not bullish on them, but I'm like, here's my mindset on it. And and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like it's like everybody does it. And that's why everybody does it because you just like, don't want to miss out. And there's a lot of discoverability there. Don't get me wrong. But I think that a lot of it ends up being like, when are you just dis- like, what's that? Dis- what's the discoverability? It's somebody who half of them probably don't even really listen to podcasts They're not really podcast people at all. And then the half that do listen to podcasts, that's not what they're doing right now. Right now they're like mind numbingly going through TikTok. Right. Like they're they're not like about to like jump out and go listen to your hour long show probably. Right. Like they're in line at Starbucks or something like that. So yeah, I mean I've I've not I'm not so bought into the short form clips as a way to grow an actual podcast. I think that's what makes it so hard to grow is like catching podcast listeners when they're listening to podcast. DMing is an interesting one. I haven't really heard that tap tactic, but that that seems like it could work a little bit, could get some it's scrappy, it is a little bit, you know, if you're willing to be a little spammy, but uh You also could get the feedback loop that way, right? You could be like, "I would just love feedback on this," you know.
0: I mean, two podcasts I've discovered have come from like short firms, so I'm like kind of bullish on it. But the thing is, before you go into it, you just got to do great. You can't just put clips up. You have to know, like, okay, what's the hook? Like, what's the like the quick? Yeah, Yeah, they're good, and that's the difference between most people just are bad, which just like the discoverability sucks. Um, Yeah. It's also a huge investment, so like that's the problem too. Like making them
1: good isn't as easy as it seems. They're short, but it's not that easy.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it's also if you're if you have a YouTube, if you put your podcast on YouTube, it's a great like. Okay, I'm already on YouTube. Let me watch the full podcast on YouTube. So it's like kind of like the same platform.
1: So I'll put it this way: for it to be an independently profitable entity podcasting is going to be the harder route because even that, like, let's say you do grow with clips, you'd grow with short form. I, and I think many people have a lot of, not a lot, but like some podcasts where I don't know if I've ever actually listened to a full episode, but I've definitely, I've definitely consumed an episode's worth of like clips, like clipped videos for five minute videos or like short form videos, 60 second videos. Like I've consumed so many of them from that podcast, but maybe not ever listened to a full episode. But the problem with that is, like, the where where you make your money in a podcast is on the full episodes. It's like on downloads, people listening to it. That's the hard thing if you're trying to run it as an independently profitable entity. It's probably one of the harder ones to grow into that profit point. And if you're going to put any money or resource into making it good, which you're going to have to, it's
0: going to be a slower turnaround to make it profit. I think. I think you got to think of it. The social presence is like I'm not building this to like grow my podcast. I'm building this to put like great content out for my subject. Right. And if it builds my podcast, that's a plus. Like, that's the problem. I think if you build it to build a podcast, it is negative return. But if you build it to, like, grow an audience and then eventually, like, the net return is helping your podcast, then I think you see. So, like, the mentality difference. There's so many ancillary benefits
1: to content creation, just in general. Like, I uh, heard somebody say the other day like everybody doom scrolls you know what i mean elon musk doom scrolls like uh whoever you want mark zuckerberg doom scrolls everybody doom scrolls right like you never know who might see your content uh, i think it was alex from wife layla said she got contacted by like a pretty famous rapper she's like I, you would know him and he just like dm'd me and was like i really have seen a lot of your content and i really like it generally though like if that's happening there's some kind of momentum there and and it can be leveraged in some way for your business, right? So I definitely see the benefits of of short form, but it's an investment, like you said. Um, So you, I mean, like you just have to be intentional about it. If you're going to get into a podcast, what you probably should be asking yourself is like, initially, do I stand to benefit with like middle of funnel, bottom of funnel content and a tool for networking? Podcast is really good if you have like a sales cycle where you're like, okay, these people who are at this point, like I'm going to send them more informational, educational content that is going to get them from that middle of funnel down into a buying spot. And I'm going to use this as a, as a
0: networking tool.
1: Like that's actually like the way you can leverage it right away, but it won't make a lot of money right away for sure.
0: Another question, the last question after you really is, what is a marketing hill you would die on? My marketing hill to die on is that you should not have any marketing
1: hills to die on. That's the whole point the whole point of marketing is that there's like no hard and fast rules. This is all a test. This is all a moving landscape. This is all something that like, you've got to read and react. Like the whole point is to get a lot of data, read, react to the data and just do what's right, right? Like you don't have to be right. You don't have to be right. You have to do what's right. So I think that's probably where I'm at. Like I don't have any really big marketing hills to die on because I think my main marketing hill that I would die on is like, you really shouldn't have any marketing hills that you would die on. You should always be flexible. You should be water.
0: My point of view in the marketing hill is strong opinions loosely held. At a time, you should have some marketing hills because that's going to like get you to where you are. Otherwise, you're going to be like doing 20 different things. So you should say, my marketing hill is that build a media company. My marketing hill is this. And then as you get data, as you get stuff coming back, like, oh, maybe media company is not what I believe anymore. But you still should have a strong opinion because that's the problem with a lot of marketers is they'll go, oh, maybe I'll do paid advertising, not like Facebook's a way to go. Let's go all in. That's a good, okay, all right. So if I were to
1: reframe then, I would say what makes money gets attention. And that's why I think if you're going to build like a content marketing strategy, a media strategy within your company, then you shouldn't do it as just like, a, it, like if it's just going to go on the cost side of your p then it's probably going to end up getting cut after three months, six months, unless you're just really devoted top down to it, right? Like all the way up, but different leadership comes in, whatever happens, it's probably going to end up getting cut if it's just on the cost side of your p But what makes money gets attention. So if you build your content marketing efforts in a way where it's actually going to be profitable, like they're actually going to make you money, then they're going to get more attention. They're going to get more resource. They're going to get better and they're going to get bigger and they're ultimately going to become a
0: better asset. I like that one. That's a good um, marketing heel down. I think, yeah, I think there's always like strong opinions lose the out. I think marketing, yeah. what I love about marketing is what you said is it, is it is ever-changing. It is basically science. Like someone invented something once and then there's a new scientific experiment that proved that it wrong or proved it right or proved there's actually more to the story or proved something. So it's like a bunch of scientific experience that are just like new inventions, new inventions on top of inventions and top of pensions, which is great. Uh, yeah. It's cool. Lastly, where can people find you and what you're doing?
1: Yeah, I'll keep it pretty simple. I have a, a newsletter that I partner with uh, another creator that maybe some of uh, your audience knows uh, named Nick Shackelford. Uh, we're partnering on a newsletter called The Dive. It's a weekly deep dive into Building businesses. So it's the divenewsletter.com or you can listen to my podcast, Modern Commerce, wherever you get your podcast. There are two Modern Commerce podcasts. Somebody came in and kyped the name from me. One of them hasn't published since February. So you're looking for the one with the blue background and like the white logo. But yeah, Modern Commerce, wherever you listen to podcasts,
0: that's my pod. I feel like that's like the one thing you should do when you start a podcast is look at this another name that has a Like i think that's like the simple first check to do uh
1: i have a working theory that they purposely did that but oh goodness oh goodness yes
0: yeah. because okay. well. i wasn't that
1: big at the time but it, like there was a growth trend so yeah yeah
0: okay well thank you so much for coming on this pod learned a lot and thank you for sharing your insights yeah for sure thanks for having me thanks so much for listening